A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travelled to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members, and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Graham Hunter, and we'll bring you joy. Welcome to The Big Interview. I'm Graham Hunter. Kind of you to join us. I'm happy that you're here. More chat about football and life. This episode, number 98 in our interview series in the beginning, 98, you beauty. This is with John Hartson. Beyond being a very successful footballer and somebody who has been tested by life, John stuck in my consciousness ever since 95, 96, when I moved from being a part-time journalist to a full-time football journalist and... I was flying back from Turin with Tommy Burns, then the Celtic manager, having taken him on a three-day trip to visit Marcello Lippi and um, to Pietro Ventroni, the fitness trainer at Juventus. And on the flight back, Tommy was giving me an interview. And he said, off the record, as Celtic manager, he was desperate to sign John Hartson. And I'll admit, at that time it startled me. I couldn't quite see why this, John calls himself a raging bull at that age, a patently talented but not refined striker coming through at Arsenal, having made his mark at Luton, was so attractive to Tommy Burns, a man who'd shown real astuteness in signing for his club, George Cadet and Andy Tom and Paolo Di Canio, etc. So I began to follow John. I began to speak to people um, who knew him at that early age and throughout his career, I have thought that he's something of an underestimated footballer. I ended up in one of the Celtic Barcelona ties working for STV as a summariser alongside John and I found him to be not only friendly and helpful but a really interesting guy. In this first part, um, again recorded at a distance because of the conditions that all of us at this stage are suffering thanks to the pandemic, therefore slightly different sound quality than normal. There's lots to like here I'd say. But I recommend that you listen out for a description of John's apprenticeship at Luton under Mick Harford. Mick is a legendary figure in the game. And whether you've heard of him, whether you watched him, whether you feared him, or whether you don't know who Mick Harford is, John's description of the guy he had to go and work for and how bad he could be 
to other people, not John, takes you right back to the apprenticeship system and gives you a brilliant portrait of Mick Harford. Beyond that, there are lots of different topics in this first part, and John begins by talking about his most testing centre-half opponent, somebody who will probably surprise you, somebody who wasn't John's size, and somebody who, when John looked at him in the tunnel at Mestalla in Valencia, thought, aye, aye, tonight's going to be a piece of cake. And it wasn't. Welcome to Big Interview 98 with Mr. John Hartson, part one. So listeners, um, hello, this is the big interview in detention. Um, dear, dear listeners everywhere, um, I, I don't know what I did. I, I didn't look at the teacher in a bad way. I've never had detention that lasted this long in my life before. But one of the things that's bright, you know, when you're in detention and the classroom's all stuffy and it's quarter to five and you want to go home, one of your mates comes to the window and just pushes his nose against the window and makes you laugh. We've got one of those. The, the man who talked me through only my second appearance on the Parkhead pitch, which was as a as a quivering reporter for Celtic versus Barcelona. And I had Mr. John Hartson to my right-hand side. He talked me through the whole game and the whole performance. John, thank you for coming and rescuing the big interview from detention. It's it's generous of you. Ah, you're more than welcome, Graham. I've always wondered. I've watched you over the years doing several interviews and podcasts. and I've seen you at regular places, games and everything. But... Um, this is one of the first times we get to have a really good football chat, and I'm looking forward to it. And still, you subject yourself to this. That means you're a strong, strong man. If you've seen me before, then it was an excuse to run and say, uh, rubber ear, lads. John, look, everybody that's listening knows the basis of this interview, and I want to ask you, I want to test you a little bit, because I think I know the answer to the question, but I'd like a description. Because, John, in this interview, what we've often done is we've taken specialists in their position and we've asked them about their art now I think that of all the central defenders that were beaten by you bullied by you outthought by you outjumped by you tricked by you you've said in the past that it was a wee guy with lanky long hair who was your at least one of your toughest central defense opponents and, and that was Roberto Ayala El Raton, El Raton, he was called the mouse. Can you believe he was called the mouse? John, that was Celtic against Valencia in the year before your run to a third European final on your part. Please, for those who don't understand Ayala or the art of a centre forward against a central defender, why did you name Ayala as your as your trickiest opponent? Describe him and the situation, will you? Well, First of all, that was against Rafa Benitez's Valencia in the Champions League, uh, the, the group stages. That's, this was the game. Can't recall what year. It's December. It's December two thousand and one, and as you say, it's a home and away tie in the group stage. And I mean, look, just for just for just for everybody else, just, you, there was no test of memory for you. Valencia line up with, line up with Canizares, Pellegrino, Fabio Aurelio, the man Roberto Ayala, Miroslav Djukic, the sweeper. Amadeo Carboni, brutal, hard Italian fullback, Curo Torres, uh, Vicente, the brilliant winger, Pablo Aymar, Gonzalo de los Santos, John Carew, then Anglama and Mista on the bench, and Rafa Benitez was the coach. You're right, John. But it was that, you know, it was that battle with Ayala that, that yeah. 
Why was he such a tough opponent? Well, the reason for that, Graham, was I, I generally had really good success as a centre-forward against players of the ilk, let's just say for argument's sake, Gareth Southgate, um, Chris Perry, Jamie Carragher, players that couldn't match me physically for my strength. And I could bully them. I could roll them. You know, I'd win almost every header that came into me. They couldn't get around me. And I looked across at the tunnel. Um, I was in the tunnel that night against um, Valencia at the Mestalla. And I remember um, Valencia had the white kit, didn't they, with the black shorts. And, and I'm looking at Ayala, and I'm honestly thinking to myself, I'll be all right tonight. I'll be fine. I thought, I'm bigger than him. I'm stronger than him. Play it into me. I'll beat him in the air. I'll roll him. I'll bully him. And from the first minute, he was up for the challenge. He was like a rock. He was so hard and strong. For somebody who was about five foot nine, five foot ten, he outjumped me. Whenever I sort of tried to bully him, he was giving it as much back. Great defender. He was torpoking the ball. If I tried to get hold of it, he would talk. He would put his foot through through the middle of my legs, poke it away. If he couldn't win it, you know, in front of me, he'd try and get his body on his legs in and around the ball so he'd make it messy for me as a striker to get a hold of it and link play. And I was just incredibly... Um, impressed with him and I, I come off that night and we got beat 1-0 um, if, if it hadn't been for Rab Douglas actually it would have been 6 or 7 they were an unbelievable side Pellegrino alongside him by the way he must have been 6 foot 6 so that was another um, you know a physical sort of battle that I had I remember uh, I, Aymar Aymar what a player he was fabulous, fabulous. a little bit like David Silva wasn't he that type of player could yeah. thread balls through with the correct weight and set things up and just very, very good on the ball, took it brave. Um, but Roberto Ayala, I always say, Graham, because the ones I generally struggled against were Steve Bruce, Neil Ruddock, Gary Pallister, um, Dave Watson, defenders who could match me physically. Because they were they were tough, they were strong. And back then, you know, when I was coming through, I signed for Arsenal 20, 25, 26 years ago now. So in the in the late sort of nineties, you know, you could the referee would say, "I oh, keep your elbows down," and he and he he give me one, he he give me a free kick, and then five minutes later he'd give it against me, and I could say to the ref, oh, "Come on, ref, any chance?" And he'd wink at me and say, "You get the next." <laughs> Physical battles going on all over the pitch, but it was it was the big physical centre halves who were same weight as me, had the same presence as I did, and then I felt the smaller ones. It was an easy day for me because I was so strong, and that's why I built my career on backing in and holding. But that night, at, at, in in uh, in Valencia against uh, Roberto Ayala, he didn't allow me to do that, and I I was surprised that. He was so good for someone that was so small. Uh, he could jump, physically strong. He was quicker, um, and he was just outstanding. I just had a really difficult mind against him. There's a phrase here, John, in Spain, 
which is called Mala Leche. And it's daft. It's like a lot of Spanish. It doesn't translate really well because it just means bad milk. But we would say that somebody was a bad bugger. How much within you, because you've used the phrase bully a lot there, and I think part of that is sports bullying in terms of making sure that psychologically you dominate them if there's a physical edge proving it. But there's another side to a centre-half, centre-forward battle. The malalechi, the bad bugger part, sometimes it would go off between a striker and a centre-half. Did you have that nastiness inside you naturally? Well, I, I, I was what you would call a, a, a physical header of the ball. I would get across people and I, I, would, I would almost get a one, two, three, get a jump, and then my knee would go into the side of the defender and I wouldn't just win the header, I would win the header at ease. I would get so far above them and I would sort of physically head the ball, either flick it on or bring it down or head it back. And I was, I was naturally aggressive. I wouldn't say I was nasty. You know, we might go on to the Albergovic incident later on, you know. And I, and I think with that incident, I, I always say, you know, I, I'd spent 20 years, 15 years trying to build up a reputation of being not only... You look at it, George Graham bought me for my physicality at 19. Joe Kinnear took me to Luton. Uh, George Graham, sort of, uh, I worked with Arsene Wenger, Martin O'Neill signed me, Harry Redknapp signed me, some of the biggest managers in the game signed John Hartson. They didn't sign me for I was quick and I run the channels and I had, you know, I could take six or seven players on and pass the ball. They signed me because they saw somebody that would give everything, somebody that would battle with defenders. He'd be a focal point. He'd be our main man to hit up front. He had good feet. He could head the ball and he could score goals. So my old, my game was based around my physicality. Now, I don't, I'm not saying I wanted to hurt people, but I went out onto the pitch very physical. I, I, was, I was up for the challenge and I didn't fear. I, did, I didn't fear them challenges, even from a very young age. I don't think it's nasty. I just think it's people feared you. You wanted to put fear into the centre-halves, if you like. That's what I wanted. And I think I did that lots of times. Did you, did you win any in the, in the tunnel? Did you, did you think, like, last time I did this guy and I can see he's not really... In the tunnel, did you look and think, yeah, I got this guy? Well, I used to have a look at the players and, you know, used to think, oh, maybe I could get the better of him or that. But the other thing was, as well, Green, which is interesting, I, I didn't ever talk to players... I never spoke to the opposition. You know, I never tried to intimidate them by any language or speaking. I always felt if I spoke to them, it would affect my game. I was like a silent assassin, if you like. I'd be silent, you know, and then I'd knock them over. I'd pick them back up. Um, always pick them back up because you felt the referee might give you a bit of sympathy and you get away with a booking, you know. If, if you went and beat somebody in the air, then he fell on the floor. If you picked the lad up, and the referee probably let you off for that, rather than if you snarl at them over them, then he might give you a yellow card. But I never, I never liked the verbals. I never ever spoke to the opposition players. I just, just like to go do it, you know, as it came along. When you were um, still very young, just twenty, um, Arsenal's run to the Cup Winners' Cup, which we'll come to in a minute, meant that you played the UEFA Super Cup and you'd 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 pleased and impressed. First George Graham and then um, his assistant, uh, Stuart Houston, so much that you were easily 
um, Arsenal's first choice striker. And, and the Super Cups against AC Milan, in the days when they're still immensely uh, powerful, they've got world-class footballers everywhere. The so, Euro- it, 94, didn't they? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so they, they're European Cup winners. Now, t- tell me, when you go up at that age and that raw for all your physicality and for all your promising talent, you, you went up against, if I'm not wrong, Desai and Costa Curta, um, both at Highbury and in San Siro. How ready were you? Did people give you notes on them? I know I'm asking you to go back a long way, but also, I mean, they were just outstanding. They were truly, in Costa Curta's, in my impression, John, he, he was a defender's defender. Always alert. He was an Anglophile. He loved English football, which is why the Italians called him Billy Costacura. This this I in that era was one of he, he literally was one of the great European footballers of the, the previous twenty years, and he remained so. He didn't put a foot wrong in the final in, uh, until the final in ninety eight and winning the World Cup. He was the player of the tournament for me, way beyond Zidane. At twenty, at barely just turned twenty, were you ready for them? What did you learn from them? What was the experience like? Well, first and foremost, Graham, I had to be ready because as far as I was concerned, I was we'd lost two centre-forwards. Alan Smith had retired. Uh, Alan Smith, the year before, scored the winning goal against Palmer in Malmo. Right. Won the Cup Winners' Cup, that's why we met. Cup Winners' Cup winners faced the European champions and we met in what you call the Super Cup. And the first game at Highbury was um, Paul Mercer's comeback game, having been in a priory for so long. And we drew nil-nil at Highbury. Then we go over to the San Siro and uh, we get beat 2-0. But I felt as if I did very well. Um, it was actually Costa Curta and Baresi. They were the Barresi. two. played in the middle of the park um, alongside where Maldini played left back. And I just felt, because I was so young and I, I was just so fresh and I was just enjoying it. You know, I probably, I hadn't ever heard of Costa Curta at all. Remember, a year and a half prior to that, I'm just coming out of Luton's first team, you know, in the old first division. So I'm playing against Barnsley and, I play, and all of a sudden my move to Arsenal happens very quick. With all due respect, I know who they are now because they're actually magnificent Italian superstars, World Cup winners, Champions League winners, retired the Maldini shirt, number three shirt. You know, for AC Milan. But at that particular time, I was so young, I was so fresh that um, George Graham used to just say to me, he used to say, Big man, excuse my Scottish accent, but I managed. That was George, you you got him in one. My wife is Scottish, so I've been learning a bit. He used to go, Big man, win your heaters, all right? He said, and relax, just relax, win your heaters, big man. And calm down. That's what he used to say to me. And all I had to do, because Alan Smith was, he won the Golden Book twice at Arsenal. He was a magnificent centre forward. You know, they'd had great success under Smudger. And I think George, with with myself, I don't know whether I was a replacement for Smudger, but I was just somebody that he, he spent a lot of money on. I was Britain's most expensive teenager at 19 years of age. 2.5 million I went to Arsenal for. I think he had someone who was young, who was going to be around a long time, and I was incredibly aggressive and enthusiastic. And when I, I would imagine that when, when Costa Curta and Baresi see me running at them, young, no fear, I had no fear whatsoever, and I'm looking to head the ball, and they're probably thinking, oh my God, I'm not getting into this wild animal's way here. And that's what I was like. So 
with all due respect, but, you know, I had great respect for them as time went on. Um, and it was interesting because we played, we played AC Milan for Celtic in, a, in the Champions League uh, qualifiers again around about 2004, 2005. And Costa Curta played, right? And as I'm walking off the pitch, I've gone to shake his hand. And he looked at me and he said, are you still playing? <laughs> I was getting cheeky so-and-so because he was older than me. He was so about 43 old. by then. That's what he said to me. He said, you still playing? I went, what, what was it? You still playing? See, see, uh, see John, that, that's the class of us. That's him getting in your head for the next time in case there's yeah. another next time. Ah, that's the psychology of a defender. And that's what he said to me. So I remember Maldini played that night as well. Um, uh, Baresi had retired by then. But uh, no, they were they were just great times. Um Almost thrown into a Super Cup final, and then the year after, I think, um, or it might have been the same year, we played in the Cup Winners' Cup final. You know, so I think people sometimes, you know, overlook the fact I'm only 20 years of age, Graham, and I've, I've played in two European finals. You know, which when we really look back now, it, it was remarkable times, you know, then. You've made the jump um, from uh, Luton to Arsenal, but I want to sort of expand that jump because. You know, when you're playing, let's say, 19, I think I've got your age wrong. If I think it's 19 against um, Milan and then 20 by the time you face Saragossa the year. So at 19, you're about five, six years away from watching games at, at Swansea, watching games at yeah. Richfield and, and going down there and, and before you're on the train up and down to Luton. And I just wonder, this is pure self-indulgence, John, and if it's a yeah. player that you didn't like or don't remember, then you can give me a little shrug and, and roll me and bully me physically. But... You, you were able to watch a great hero of mine when I was growing up, Tommy Hutchison. Oh, class, class. Tommy Hutchison played on the left, cut inside, cut back. It had driven me mad because I don't want the ball crossed in. But he could cut back, cut back, cut. And he was a wonderful winger. And he was doing it in his 40s at Swansea, Graham. And I was only watching a video the other week when he scored in the FA Cup final for Man City. And then he scored that own goal in the same game. So, you know, sorry for interrupting, but Tommy Hutchinson was somebody I stood on the North Bank at 10, 11, 12 years of age at the old vet's field with my father, watching Tommy Hutchinson, Bob Latchford, Alan Curtis, Leighton James, Robbie James, Jeremy Charles, you know, Di Davis in goal, Adji Azbiabdich. Swansea were just my life at the time and the North Bank was somewhere where my dad would take me. And it's always stayed with me. I'm born and bred in Swansea. And at that time under John Toshak, what a team they had. People forget some of the names that you've been mentioning that uh, Leighton James was a fantastic footballer at Burnley. And he used to have, a, I remember reading in Shoot, like these were the innocent days that he was, they were like, how do you manage to go out for a night or out for the papers and not be? I just put on, and he had a big Elvis Costello at National Health Classes. He said, I just put on my glasses and nobody recognises me at different times. He was class for Burnley as well, wasn't he? He was fantastic for Burnley. And, and Di Davis, people forget about what a brilliant, because he was a Wales international goalkeeper for many, many years as well. And, and I also watched Swansea then the next team from that, which was Dudley Lewis. It was Andy Melville, Chris Coleman at left back. Um, players like Paul Rayner, Jimmy Gilligan, you know, just John y- John Yogi Hughes in due course, and John, and John came there. So that's one you say. That's what you say took you to Europe because you had the famous games against Panathinaikos, didn't you? Yeah, well, the fans got arrested, didn't they? They got held in Panathinaikos, and uh, but I and think it, it was it, 
was it 3-3? It was, I mean, one of the yeah. giants of European football it's and you incredible. get them at the Vets. I mean, how, what did it feel like? It was just incredible because the Vets used to host the Welsh internationals as well. Um, it hasn't hosted one for a while now. The Liberty Stadium has, but the old Vets field used to as well. So they were great games. Swansea in Europe, you know, we, we just, just couldn't believe it. And the good thing about Swansea in recent times, they, they've had some really talented managers. I think they, they slipped out of the Premier League. They had seven years, seven seasons in the Premier League, you know, under Roberto Martinez. Brendan Rodgers took us in into the Premier League, but then left for Liverpool. Um, they so, had a League Cup final as well, wouldn't they? Did they know? A League yeah, Cup yeah. final under Michael Laudrup, of course, beating Bradford 5-0. The first proper trophy Swansea had, had, had won. You know, in, in the history, I believe, that the lead, the Capital One Cup, I think it was called, Graham. And they, they played some brilliant football on, on the on their way to this progress. And they've slipped out now. And it's um, you know, American based owned club and they've they've got a lot of shares and they, they it almost seemed to sell every asset. You look at last season, Daniel James went, uh, McBurney went, the two IU brothers both went at one stage, but um uh, one of the IUs is back at the minute. Andre IU, sorry, is there right now. But, you know, they they, they become a bit of a selling club as if like they, they're trying to make some of the, the money back on the assets. But you grew up in different days when the Vets field was muddy, when it was largely, it would have been aggressive. It would have been very proud, locally noisy. They might not have hit the heights, but they. I think you get taught as a person by the club that you begin watching at. I think you get taught by the atmosphere, by the people around you, by the players you see in front of you. I don't just mean a football club. What did it make it what did it help make you growing up in Swansea in the in the seventies and eighties, specifically ideas, values, attitudes, behaviour? What what has it left you with throughout your career? That well, I, I Graham, I was a fan. I was a fan. I was an avid, avid Swansea City fan. And I, I would watch I would watch players from the from the North Bank, and it'd be it'd be four and a half thousand people there. Five, that was the crowds. It wasn't much bigger than that, six or seven maybe. Um, and I always loved it when the centre forward scored, and then ran into the crowd because I'd be in that crowd, and if you ran towards it, it just gave you that wow, what a feeling. And the centre forwards back then, as I says, it was like Paul Rayner. Scored a lot of goals. I don't want to go into the recently when it was Lee Trundle, Jason Scotland, obviously of late, recently McBurney, players like this. I I loved the Swans when I was growing up, when I was 13, 14, 15 years of age. And it, it does it does really make you feel that I've always appreciated the fans. I've always had time for the fans of clubs that I've played for. You know, West Ham is a, is a great crowd. Upton Park was a brilliant place to play. And if you if you notice a lot of my goals, when I did score, I ran to the crowd. I ran to the crowd. That elation, and when you run, not so much. I ran into them a few times, but I'd have to avoid them and stay a certain you know distance away. But um, it, they were great, great days. Um, listening to the chants and to the opposition fans, and but as I said, I grew up on the terraces, and then I lived the dream. I I, I went on to become a professional myself. Thank you. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Without stepping out of bounds and tell me if I do, but you, your mum worked in a psychiatric unit, is that right? My mother worked as a psychiatric nurse for 22 years, yeah, in a psychiatric hospital. If I make a comparison, over here, um, Gerard Piquet made, made a lot of the fact that when his mum his mom worked in a, in a spinal unit where people were being trying to be rehabilitated as much as they could from car crashes or motorbike crashes, his mum used to take him in to say, look, kid, you know, this is what life can can give you make the most of everything all the time was there an equivalent i don't necessarily mean a visit but was there an equivalent whereby your mum's experiences and and uh, what she lived through left her teaching you and telling you certain things well my mum that you know the hospital that she worked in i try to say this with, with all due respect to the patients and the people that were there you know they they, they were taken off the streets because they were danger to society they were psychotic and my mother worked as a night uh, care, a night nurse. She used to get training in karate, my mother, as a nurse, because they had to give them training to deal with the patients yeah. if, it, if there ever was a problem. Um, and I remember one Sunday afternoon, there was, a, there, was a, there was a patient. My mother said, all he's talking about, John, is you. He loves football and he wants to meet you. And, and I'd never been there in 21 years while my mother worked there. I was, I was only about my late teens. My mum was worked, she worked there for a long time. And uh, I went in there and she introduced me to this gentleman. And, uh, you know, he was pretty much shook his hand and everything else. But I couldn't believe that my mum had put herself in a situation, night shift, where for me a lot of strange things happened in the night, Graham. From one o'clock till five, six o'clock in the morning, it's, it's dark, it's airy, you know. And my mum was up there looking after people that weren't allowed out onto the streets, you know, psychiatric nurse. Anything could have happened. She was so brave to do that. And I used to think to myself, I came away thinking, my mum, not that she had to, I love my mum, I still do to this day, but she went up in my estimation so far for the job and the work that she did by being at that hospital as, a, as working a night shift two or three nights a week. And then she'd come home in the morning and she'd have to go into bed and she'd get us all for, ready for school 
and my mum would generally then go and sleep a few hours in the day. We'd all be in school um, because she'd obviously done the night shift. And, um, you know, the, the, the job that she did up, up there, and she came away in the end because she had an accident. Um, I won't really go into it, but she had an accident. No. And then my, my dad almost said to her, right, you're not going back up there. Did you ask her if she was scared? Did you ask her if she felt fear? Or was was her, her professionalism and her training so much that she felt that they needed her? What was yeah, the, it was that way. They needed her. She, she couldn't be scared. Even if she was scared, you know, she couldn't show that she was scared because that was her job. That was she, that's what she signed up to do. You know, if people had it, she could have got attacked. She could, somebody could have picked up a knife. You know, they could have, they could have, um, you know, ganged up towards her, anything else. But she was loved up there. She had a wonderful relationship with the patients. She was a fantastic nurse. And obviously, you know, that's my mother. So I may be grown up with that sort of mental resilience, if you like, um, about look, seeing my mother and obviously realising what she'd done. And uh, the respect there was, was enormous. Paint me a picture, John, John, paint me a picture of a man that uh, is legendary. He's probably a little bit less well-known for his football, but Mick Harford. Mm. Mick Harford, there are certain people in football who carry a reputation for this or that. It might be humour. It might be an ability to live mental at night time, go crazy and still be brilliant. On the, yeah. there, there are people like Ricky Carvalho, who Benny McCarthy told me, useless in training, shit in training, Saturday, 8 out of 10. McCarford carries one of those reputations because he's reputed to be just about the hardest man that played football in living memory. He becomes not just the guy to whom you're apprenticed, but in theory, the apprentice system then was supposed to be, and in the series we've covered all the bullying and the do this and the do that, you were supposed to learn. You were supposed to duplicate your, your senior pro's action. So two things in this stream, and, and I want to really paint the picture. Tell us about Mick Harford, the, the man, the footballer, and tell us about the process of being supposed to serve him, which is what an apprentice was supposed to do, but learn from him too. Mick Harford is um, what I would call my uh, an icon, um, along with Ian Rush, different players, was my idol growing up. I watched Rushy, obviously, um, but never got around him. When I joined Luton, Mick, not only was he a legendary figure, he was a magnificent centre-forward. Now, Mick was different to me. Mick wanted to hurt people. And he played in an era where he's going up against the likes of Brian Kilcline, Sam Allardyce, um, Alvin Martin, um, Alan McDonald from QPR, Northern Ireland, you know, a monster of a man. And it was even worse, you know, the, the battles then. It was elbows up, a free-for-all at times. Um, in the 80s, you know, you see, uh, not mentioned the Billy Whitehursts and them type of like of players. And we spoke about my aggression, and I worked for Mick for, for two years. I worked under him in terms of watching his every move, how he would lead the line, how he would get across people and take the ball down into his chest. And John, John, that's a te- sorry, it's a technical term. And occasionally in the series we stop, people who listen to this love football, but explain, pretend you're explaining to a 16-year-old junior and, and he's your apprentice. When you say get across, mm. physically, what does that mean? 
Well, it gets. What it means is you you have to be in front of the defender when the ball when when a midfielder is looking to play it into the centre forward. There's no point being behind the defender unless you want to run in behind, like a Craig Bellamy. Craig Bellamy very seldom came short. He used to play on defenders' shoulders and run in behind. He never wanted to come short because he gave the he gave the defenders a chance to kick him and to win the ball. But Craig used to run in behind. Michael Owen was the same. Michael a lot of the time played on players' shoulders and they would run in behind. And the one thing defenders hate, Graham, is running back towards their own goal. That's what they, they don't like to do that. They like to play with the, with the play in front of them. But as, the ball. as a centre-forward, you know, good centre-forwards like Alan Shearer, who I admired, you know, you've got, to get your, you've got to get your team up the pitch, right? If the team are defending, yep. and, and you've got to be an out ball, you've got to be a focal point. So when that ball comes into you from the right back or the left back or the midfielders, you've got to be there first. It can't come straight back in so you're under pressure again. So you've got to get across that defender, come across his blind side, if you like, and arrive at the right time. So you can either bring it down, take a touch, or if somebody's on, you can play it back first time. That's if you've got a decent touch. Mick and I, we had a good touch. So generally the managers like you to take a touch. Take a touch, don't panic, don't have 15 things in your mind. Just get a hold of the ball, Hold on to it for a couple of seconds. Allow us as a team to come up the pitch and have a breather. That's what good centre forwards generally do. And if they can win a free kick, or if they can, you know, uh, if they can get something off the referee, then that takes us right up the pitch and gives everybody a little bit of respite. You see a lot of great centre forwards. They arrive in the box. They arrive at the right time. They get across the defender. If you're already in there, you're almost easy to mark. You know, if you're already yeah. in there, you're almost coming away from the play and then you're arriving. It's the same as Mick used to get across the defenders. The timing of his runs was outstanding. He'd get across the defender, so the last second, and bang, he'd stamp his feet on the floor. He's got it. He's in control. You're not getting the ball off me. Then he's got an out ball. He can go wide. He can go to the midfielders. He can try and play his other uh, partner in, centre forward, whatever you want to do. Was he a unit? Was he a physical specimen? No, not really. He was no. thin. He was slender. He was about six foot four, slender. Probably weighed about 13, 14 uh, stone. He had a size 12 Adidas World Cup boots, right? And you, I, you knew from cleaning it. <laughs> well, I knew. I knew because I was his boot boy. I was his apprentice. I used to have to get Nick's kit ready for him every morning on a peg, his jumper, his T-shirt, his shorts, socks, everything, and his boots had to be gleaming. We were all allocated with a professional, two professionals. For me, it was young Jason Reese, you might not have heard of him, from Wales, and Mick Arthur. They were my two uh, pros that I looked after. It wasn't like it is now. We used to clean the stands. The um, Our youth team manager used to go around the dressing room and put his finger across the top of the, the hooks to see if there's any dust on them. We used to go in and clean the baths, everything as apprentices. Well, that's that, what you could at it. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, I was, yeah, I was good at You had to do it. You had, that, that was your job. You know, you had to train in the morning, make sure the players' boots, then you have to get the boots at the end of the day, they'd all be in the big bucket. 
take them out, clean them, prepare them for the next morning. But was Mick was Mick an easy boss to have? Brilliant. He was excellent with me. Um, he'd come and watch us play as well, and we used to think that was brilliant. That Luton's not a big place, but we used to. Um, Whenever Luton didn't have a game or sometimes we had a midweek game, some of the first team players, Brian Steen, Tim Breaker, Mick Harford, Mark Steen, Les Seeley, poor Les, who lost Les a few years ago, Les Seeley. Um, even going back as Mal Donaghy, Danny Wilson. This, this is the team that, that, that I used to watch, you know. Ashley Grimes at left back, ex-Man United, Ashley Grimes. Team that, won the, that won the cup eventually, didn't oh, they? Brilliant team. David Priest as well. Again, Priest is not longer with us either. Um, Ricky Hill, you know, they had some fa- fantastic players, all managed under David Priest. So Mick, he was he was tall, gangly, all elbows, but, but great. What a touch. What a touch for a big man. He, he was fearsome. He was a brilliant character. He was one of them where... Mick probably, you probably would call Mick nasty. Mick was a good coach, did very, did very well at Luton. You know, last season Luton got promoted, didn't they? For me, a great man and an awful lot of time for Mick Alford. When you signed for George, you know, he, he loved you so much that he tried to sign you again at Spurs years mm-hmm. later. But you go into that Arsenal squad, Highbury was properly special. You were around not just guys who represent the country, but characters of extraordinary power. And also a team that was that off the pitch was that was going awry that was you know was behaving in ways you know you, as you said about Paul Paul took time in rehab I've seen him break down and, and cry when he talks about the, the devils he's had to cope with Tony Adams has has refound himself and given people so many chances through his rehabilitation work but try, try to sum up the atmosphere or the people that you were around and particularly. You know, if George only gave you that much coaching against Milan, there must have been more magic to George Stroller Graham than just like jump high, big man, and, and win your headers. There would have been so much more to George. I remember before I got there, George Graham had won, he'd won the double at Arsenal with, with a, a good group of players. When I got there, Graham, there was quite a big drinking culture at the club. You know, Tony Adams was, was drinking, Paul Merson would take nothing away from George Graham, but I think the players took some liberties in the end uh, and they needed something like an Arsene Wenger to come along to, to, to reinvigorate some of these players, you know. Um, and I think George, not to say, you know, he had a reputation of being a disciplinarian, but I, th- I think he loved his captain, loved Tony Adams, loved Paul Merson. We had Stuart Houston alongside him, who still was a great guy, great coach. But I, I think we had good players with Stefan Schwartz, you know, and these type of players, John Jensen, Wright, Ray Parler was coming, was in the team at that particular time. You know, and the back four speaks for itself, you know, Seaman, Dixon, Adams, Keon, Bowen, Winterburn. But I, I don't, were you daunted? Were you daunted? Because, you you know, you've got to go and work with Ian Wright. Yeah. You know, Bergkamp comes along. It must have been a daunting challenge. Do you know what, though, Graham? I, I was very young, and I, I, I was very. I, I had to. I had the attitude that I, I can't be daunted because I, I, I I'm going to fail otherwise. You know, it's you, you can't be a shrinking violet when you're at a big club and playing in front of big crowds. You, you've got to perform every week. You know, a lot of people think that you know moving from a smaller club when you're outstanding to a big club, they can't cope with that big club mentality. 
because you, you, every time you lose, it's a crisis. It's all over the newspapers. You're, you're, you're marked, you're judged. It's London, and the London press can be horrendous. And I was going for record money. Do you feel they were on your case? Oh, 100%. Massively, massively on my case. You know, because they'd watched, you know, winning Arsenal teams and things like that. I got a terrible time off the press. Going back to George Graham, that I don't know what George feels about, but I think at that particular time when, you know, he was relieved of his job because of that, uh, you know, the bung incident with, with the agent. I think at that particular time, I think George had probably had his best days at Arsenal. And after that year when Stuart and Pat Rice took over, that was a year then they took us to the Cup Winners' Cup final. And a year or two later, Bruce Rioch came in, had an absolute stinker, Bruce Rioch. Um, signed Dennis Bergkamp, though, by the way. And then Wenger came in, and I think at that time, the players needed a Wenger to come in. They needed somebody like a genius type to reinvigorate and to revitalise their careers, and that's exactly what happened. You think the players had taken over a little bit? Uh, I think so, and maybe, you know, maybe George had, had just lost that that, that, that Clint, that fear, and I say that with all due respect. I don't know if you remember much about yeah. Ozer and Sampdoria and then Zaragoza, but the thing that stands out to me is that a Sampdoria side you played against with Djokovic and Vierkavod and Mancini was an absolutely sensational side. Svenjur and Eriksson, the manager, and Samp had been used to getting to cup finals. They'd been to the Cup Cup final against Barcelona. They'd been to the European Cup final at Wembley in 92 against Barcelona. It was a side that was really experienced. You went 3-2 at home and lose 3-2 away. We were were very fortunate, Graham, because we won 3-2 at home. Brilliant night. Semi-final Cup Winners' Cup. We win 3-2 at Highbury in a close game. Uh, did Steve Bogle score two headers? Yes, Steve Steve's get, gets two headers yeah. um, at, at home. I think it's two bold and one for right, and Jugovic scores twice for them in your yeah. home 3-2 win. But and over there, the it's very game, different. In the away game, we go with 3-1 down, and an ex-Sampdoria player who came from Sampdoria to Arsenal for record money Stefan Schwartz, he was Arsenal's record signing. He takes us to 3-2. Can you claim the credit for dragging the wall or dragging the place? Because Schwartz's goal, Stefan Schwartz's goal, is from another postal fucking district, isn't it? It's not on the pitch yet, it's so far out. There's no way you should score. And, and the gap, the gap in the wall is... I mean, I don't know if you'd practice that or what. But we, I don't, I don't know, I can't know. We come from nowhere. We were 3-1. Probably not looking like we're going to score. And then Stefan pops up with this goal. It goes into extra time, goes to penalties. I take my penalty and score. Sinisa Mihailovic misses. Lee Dixon scores. Jugovic, who scored the two at Highbury in the first leg, he misses. McGoldrick misses. So uh, when you're walking up to score, um, you've got two Sampdoria misses and you put the Arsenal 2-0 up. Um, after which Maspero and Manini both score, Tony Adams takes the next penalty for Arsenal, after which it's fucking nuts for, for a semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup. Lombardo misses and Merson misses. If my flipping arithmetic is, is right, you're the man that makes it, well, Tony Adams is actually the winning penalty kick, but if you miss, then it, it keeps on going. Was there tension? Did you feel pressure? Do you even remember thinking about the penalty? Yeah, I remember it as if it was yesterday. No, I didn't feel it. I was young. I was young. 
Graham, you don't, you don't feel it when you're young. You know, you're really don't. When you're 18, 19, 20, 21... Oh, all right, going up against a centre-half, but taking a penalty is a stinker exercise, John. It doesn't matter about your age. I was a centre-forward. I was a centre-forward and I had to step up. I'm taking a penalty. If I miss, I miss. Of course I want to score. And of course I'm nervous, but I had to take one. And luckily for me, you know, I slotted it away and I scored. I missed some big penalties, by the way, in my career. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. Yeah, it's 3-2. We go through. and It's a fantastic night. My brother's there in Genoa, watching that game. And um, we're now, we're in the final. You know, and the one interesting thing was, we're in the final, it's 1-1, it's Snyder scores a great goal for them. That one where he, he digs yeah. it, flicks it Snyder up, and he flicks it. Oh, 30 yards, hits it on the turn. And then I equalise, and it goes into extra time, I'm knackered, we're all knackered. It's gone, under, it's gone 120 minutes, right? I'm getting ready, Graham, to take a penalty. Yeah. Everybody's thinking now, right, this is going to penalties. The game was pretty dull. There was nothing happening on either side. The goalkeepers weren't really worked. Lo and behold, nine pops up and absolutely kills it. And, 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 and they take the trophy. Couldn't believe it. I, I work with Naeem a lot. Super talented. And you've got to be brave as well as technical to, to, to put the ball on target from that distance, that tired and, and under the bar. But to me, John, it's a it's a hell of a mistake. And and keepers have to carry the can for everybody else's aspirations. There's your chance of a European medal gone. I'm not expecting that on the night people were at him. I'm sure they supported him. But it still strikes me as a terrible mistake. Am I wrong? Well, I, I think David Seaman will has been has gone down on record and said, look, that was a that was a that was a bad mistake. I think I think what happened was you took by surprise. One, he's not expecting Naeem to shoot from there. Secondly, he, he'd probably admit he's, he's too far off his line. Um, but again, you're not expecting Naeem to shoot. And I think he actually gets to the ball, uh, David Seaman. But then he almost flaps at the ball. It's like a soft wrist. And I am nobody to criticise David Seaman. Because oh. at, at one stage, he, he was one of the best goalkeepers on the planet. At Arsenal, for them two years, I saw David Seaman make some tremendous saves. Even in the semi-final against Sampdoria, I think, if I'm not wrong, he saved one or two penalties during that shootout. He was a wonderful goalkeeper, so I, I can't really lay any blame on David. Presumably the rehabilitation for an era like that starts in dressing room, John. Can you remember, did people immediately go to David Seaman? Yeah, you, you go, you go, Graham. That, that, that is the that is the thing to do. Listen, in your heart of hearts, you could be going, oh, listen, what, what an error. You know, I can't believe he's done that. I can't believe he's let us go, blah, blah, blah. One or two might be, might be thinking that. But you go and give him a cuddle. You go and shake his hand and you say, look, you've saved us many times. It's one of those things. You can't throw him under a bus. You can't hang him out in that situation. Do, you know, don't you think the one person who's suffering more than any of the other players is that man himself, is the team. So he knows you. And it's it's etiquette. You know, it's, it's it's the type of thing that nobody does that. You know, you'd have to be a wrong and in the dressing room to nail your goalkeeper for that. Even the managers wants to nail him, but I don't think they do. You, you've talked about that really well, and, and maybe you're representing your point of view and Arsenal's dressing room that, that, that is, but it isn't that way in football all the time. One of the things, I'm not English, but got mad, I was... Reporting at um, Argentina three two against or no two two against England in the World Cup in ninety eight, 
when Diego Simeone comes through the back of Beckham in what's a red card challenge, Kim Milton Nielsen, when Beckham flicks a little foot out at Simeone, yellow cards Simeone for a red card challenge, and red cards Beckham for a yellow card piece of and and Hoddle hands him it. Hoddle has a go at him in the dressing room, then there's a go at him in the media. So the etiquette you've talked about is not one that exists right throughout football. No, no, but um, for me personally, I I couldn't do that to another player. I could go and kick a player, I could go and elbow a player. But if you're asking me to nail one of my own players, a teammate that I go out with every week and he makes a mistake, I don't care how big the mistake is. For me personally, I shake his hand and I say, look, forget about it. It's an unfortunate situation. That's fine. I think a sending off, though, Graham, is slightly different to a mistake. Did David Beckham have to wear his foot like that? You know, and did Glenn Oddle maybe look at Glenn Oddle and Glenn Oddle say, well, I was right to give him the ball again because he shouldn't kick his foot down in front of the referee. I think it's, a different, it's two scenarios here, by the way. I think they're both different. David Seaman's a mistake. He's too far off his line. He's, talking about, he's taken by surprise. He can't quite get a strong hand to the ball, right? He flew 50 yards. And then you've got David Beckham, right, who's on the floor. Referee's a yard away from him. And all of a sudden, he kicks out. Martin O'Neill hated ill-discipline. Martin used to say, lads, we can't win with 10 men. It's hard enough to win with 11 men. It messes up all our shape, our tactics. You know, we're one down. It gives them an advantage. Remember, Alan Thompson got sent off at Ibrox in one game early in the season. And he Martin O'Neill absolutely nailed him. He said, Alan, you've let us down. It's different if a man lets you down and gets sent off for something stupid. It's totally different than somebody making an honest... David Seaman didn't try to throw that ball in, did he? Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter. And Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.